All right, well, this morning we get to do kind of a, a teacher's delight book to overview. It's the book of Judges. Uh, this is kind of a teacher's delight because Judges is um, such a well-structured book it's already put in this pattern that it's really easy to kind of walk through and to teach. So we're going to have a good time going through Judges. So if you have your Bibles, let's open up to that book. It's right after the book of Joshua. Judges. Uh, one of the great things about Judges that I think people like, um, it's interesting, it's kind of a paradox. Some people uh, love Judges for the wrong reason. Uh, when I think of the book of Judges, what person immediately comes to mind that everybody, for whatever reason, just likes? Samson. Everybody loves Samson, don't they? Uh, I remember when, even when I was a, a little kid, didn't know the Lord... I remember that uh, I loved the story of Samson. I loved his long hair. Uh, I loved the, the cool things he could do. It wasn't until I actually began reading the book of Judges later in my life that I realized this wasn't a good guy at all. Yet we love him because what does he represent to, to, the, to the average person? What does he represent? Power. Strength. Um, what else does he represent when you think of Samson? What kind of guy is he? Don't talk about his sin yet, but what does he seem to represent that could be a virtuous thing? What's that? The underdog. Yeah, he's the underdog, right, man? He comes in and he's about to battle these Philistines, and he's just—he's always the underdog, and he always pulls it out. And so you kind of just love Samson, one guy against thousands, you know, and he can—and he can whip them all. And so you kind of feel really encouraged and and um, uh, even um, inspired by Samson's life. The problem with Samson, though, was what? It really comes down to one thing. What was Samson's problem? Okay, it, was, it was his ego. That's right. It was his ego and his lack of submission to God. Because Samson knew that he had a rare gift. And he knew that that gift was consecrated to him by God. And yet he lived um, with a lack of submission before the Lord. And yet God allowed Samson to have the preservation of his gift. Isn't that interesting? God allowed Samson to continue to have his gift. Why do you suppose God would allow Samson for so many years to thumb his nose in the face of God and yet continue in this gift? I mean, God at any time could have stopped the power that, he, that Samson would have had, couldn't he? At any time he could have. But he didn't. Why did he do that, do you think? Okay, God knew that through the rebellion of Samson, that God's purposes would ultimately be fulfilled. And, and you see at the end of the book, and this isn't a lesson on Samson, but he's like a little bit of a model here. You see that at the end of the book, because of Samson's rebellion, where does he end up? Who takes him captive? The Philistines. At the very beginning, remember, God raised Samson up to do what? To deliver Israel from the Philistines. So through the rebellion of Samson, here's the irony, God gets Samson and all of his rebellion at the end blinded by the pillars to exert one last act of strength to bring the temple down and to do what? And to kill the Philistines. So Samson takes his own life, 
and he kills all of the Philistines, God's promise is fulfilled, and, Am- and Samson brings judgment upon himself by the taking of his own life. Isn't that, fun- isn't that ir- the irony of the story? God still will take disobedience, and he'll take gifting and talent and all that we have, and God will still have his, um, his plan fulfilled. Well, that's the book of Judges, and that's life right there. See? And Ron has taught through several of the judges. And so this is going to be a review for a lot, of, a lot of you guys. But the one thing that you see that is an easy pattern in the book of Judges is that you see these cycles, right? And the cycles, I've seen people put them in fours and fives and in sixes. I'm just going to make them real simple. It's essentially four things happen in each cycle. And the cycle is, is there's the cycle of sin, suffering, supplication, which is their crying out to God, and then salvation. God comes and saves them from their from their, their plight. Okay? Sin, suffering, supplication, salvation. Now, I like to put them in those fours because the two go together. Sin and suffering, will they eventually always go together? Yes, they will. Eventually, sin and suffering will always go together. Supplication or crying out to God, does that and salvation... Deliverance by God, does that always go together? Yes, it does. It, uh, those two always go together. And so you're going to see these connections between these two points throughout the, book of, uh, throughout the book of Judges. Now, you guys all have a sheet here? If you guys want a great book um, just to walk through the Bible on, uh, I know a few books that are better than this one. It's by a guy named J. Sidlow Baxter. J. Sidlow Baxter. He wrote a book called Explore the Book. It's about this thick, but don't let that intimidate you. And he's got the greatest charts, the greatest insights. He's got um, every book in there. He'll tell you how to read the book, how to study the book, and he'll show you connecting rods and points, and it is a fabulous book. If you honestly, if I had a Bible and I could have one book on Bible study that I could have by my side of any book I've ever seen published on the Bible, I'd get... J. Sidlow Baxter's Explore the Book. It's that good. Um, Recycle bookstores, I've seen them there for 10 bucks. Brand new, they're 75 bucks. Um, but you can get them used. Go to frugal.com or something like that and get you, get you a used copy. But they are great. Did you ever, I think you got one, didn't you? Did I ever get you one? I was going to give you one as a gift. It's somewhere, it's somewhere. Okay. Very good. What's that? It's great, too. That's right. Um, now, a couple of things I want you to see here is just regular patterns, and uh, look at them with me in the Bible, okay? Number one, you're going to see the phrase, Israel, the Israelites did evil, okay? You're going to see that throughout, and let's look at those. Write, write these down first. You're going to see that in three, chapter 3, 7, uh, 3, 12, 6, 1, 10, 6, 13, 1, and you're going to see, uh, well, those are going to be your six. And you're going to see this idea of Israel doing evil. Now, this, this particular generation in the book of Judges comes off of the heels of what Tom Brokaw called the greatest generation. All right? um, Joshua's generation was great. What, what was it that made Joshua's generation great? What, what's that? Okay, they had to be obedient. And what was it, though, that forced them to really seek to be obedient? What was going on during the time of Joshua that forced that generation to be on top of things? There you go. Nothing like a good war 
to get you to kind of shore up a little bit, right? Some weak areas in your life. Yeah, Joshua was taking the nation into the land and they were fighting every ite you could think of. The parasites and the... Her- her- I, can't, I still don't remember all those names. They're fighting them all. And so the people there, they had to be people that were people of prayer. They had to be faithful. Uh, they had to re- depend on the faithfulness of God. And so it was a, it was a good generation. Um, when you look at the, the Brokaw's description of the greatest generation, it was the war generation, wasn't it? And it was that generation that had uh, virtue and integrity. Uh, they were able to lay themselves aside for the sake of the other, right? That's what you do during a time of war. You lay yourself aside for the sake of others. And that's what Joshua's generation did. Now, Joshua passes on, okay? And when he passes on, we all know that there was one major blight about that generation that they did not do. And it says right here, let's see. Verse 6, chapter 2. Look here with me. After Joshua had dismissed the Israelites, they went to take possession of the land, each to his own inheritance. So here we go. Here's this new generation. What are they getting? Yeah, they're getting an inheritance. Don't do that, parents. Just give it away. Sorry, kids. Give that thing away. Give it to Rock Point. Give it to the Salvation Army. Don't do your kids wrong. The people served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and of the elders who outlived him, and who had been all the uh, and who had seen all the great things of the Lord done for Israel. So all the people who had seen the great things done for Israel are now what? They're dead. They're gone. Okay, these are the people who went into battle. They were outnumbered, you know, three hundred to one, and they win. All of these people who saw that now are gone. Joshua, son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, in verse 8, died at the age of 110. And they buried him in the land of his inheritance at Timnath Herez, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gosh. And here it is. Here's the sad verse. After that whole, after that whole generation had been gathered to their fathers, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. They forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of Egypt. And what did they do? They followed and worshipped various gods of the peoples around them. They provoked the Lord to anger because they forsook Him and served Baal and the Ashtoreth. So, as good as the greatest generation was, and they were good, what was the one thing that God held against them. What did they fail to do? With the the older generation, the one that passed away. What's that? Yeah, they failed to pass the torch of their relationship with God to the next generation. Now, certainly this younger generation knew of the stories. They probably had... Um, some knowledge of, of, of the God of Israel. We know that they eventually cry out to God. So they have kind of a general knowledge of God. It's not like they became just completely um, 
ignorant of the things of God, but it says that they did not pass down this knowledge, this relationship, this this thing between them and God. They didn't pass that down to the next generation. So consequently, the new generation comes up and they did not know the Lord. It's because the older generation did not see the need, apparently, to have to pass their faith down to this new generation. And as a result, you get this new cycle that begins, and it becomes the dark ages of Israel. Uh, You go from a period of David, which is just, it's like Camelot in Israel. It's just a sweet time of, of just peace and strength. The nation's strong. It's, it's Camelot. It's Guinevere, Lancelot, and Arthur. That's what it is. And you go from Camelot, and now suddenly you enter the Dark Ages. And the Dark Ages get darker and darker. As each cycle continues in the book of Judges, the cycles grow worse and darker all the way till you get to the end of the book. And here's how the book is designed. Chapters 1 and 2 are kind of the prologue. They kind of introduce the cycle and what's going on. They show you the transition from Israel and Joshua into the, new, into the, the book of Judges. Chapters 3 to the end of 16 is the main narrative. It shows you six judges in particular that are focused on. There's 12 mentioned. Some argue 12 judges for the 12 tribes, possibly. But there's six judges that are focused on with narrative. And then the last two chapters is called the epilogue. Here's the interesting thing about these two chapters is those two chapters are actually chronologically, they happened earlier. They're just written at the end of the book. And the reason is because the heinousness of the events in those two chapters is so grotesque that the author, probably Samuel, sticks them at the end of the book as kind of a theological point to make the emphasis that the nation has grown into a period of great darkness and they need a, they need a ruler that can rule the nation. They need a king, you see. God longs to be their king. So at the very end of it, you see a Levite, of all people, take um, his concubine and the And this is one of the stories that you just... People are amazed when they hear that it's in the Bible. He takes his concubine and he chops her up into 12 pieces. And then he passes one piece of her body to each tribe of Israel. And at that point, the nation is so outraged by what this person did that the 11 tribes then go up against one tribe. Who's the one tribe? Where was the Levite from? Anyone remember? Benjamin. So they go up against the Benjamites, and it's 11 against 1, and they virtually obliterate the Benjamites for that act. But the reason the book ends like that is because it's trying to show you this is how far the nation has gone. It is dark. This is the nation that's supposed to be bearing the torch, the light of God. They're the ones that should be bearing witness to God and yet within their own nation you've got a Levite who's supposed to be representing man to God he takes his own concubine chops her up and passes her around to the the tribes see it's a dark book 
This isn't a book that we, we go to, to to feel inspired. This is a book you go to to see the depths of sin and the cycles of sin. And application in this book is a piece of cake. I mean, it doesn't take us long. Um, I mean, how many of you here have known the Lord, have had a relationship with the Lord for ten years or more? Yeah. Um, have you guys seen that cycle yet of God's blessing and then complacency and then sin and then suffering and then supplication? Oh, God. You know, and then Savior, you know, He comes and He saves us, and then we're complacent again, and then there's sin, and the you guys seen that cycle? Yeah, some of y'all it happens once a year, others of us it happens twice a day, like Ron and me. Uh, that's that's the pattern, see. And the key is, unlike the nation that allowed the cycles to grow and get worse. Uh, we, on the other hand, should take note of that and we should try to keep that cycle to a minimum as much as possible. Okay. Now, let's look at a couple things while we're in here in this text. Just to see. Notice real quick here on your sheet um, that I pass out from Baxter's book. just want you guys to generally see the general outline. Look how he breaks this down. He calls it the book of declension, which is what we've been talking about. Everything declines. And it's about failure through compromise. All right? Compromise is something that you see in the nation that they always think that compromise is going to do what? What does the nation always... Why do people compromise? When we compromise, okay, when we sacrifice something that is of greater value for something else, why do we do that? What's that? Yeah, you think that you're going to solve the problem, yeah. Or at least you're going to minimize the problem, right? And almost always, what are you actually doing in the long term? Yeah, you're making it much worse, right. Uh, It's the person who thinks that they're going through a really hard time, right? And uh, they go to the doctor. The doctor puts them on meds, let's say. That's okay. But they think... Well, if I just take a few more, I'll, I'll, I'll feel a little extra better. Is that a word? Extra better? No? It's okay. I'm trying to appeal to all the masses here. Some of you go extra better. Got it. Yeah, so you think, okay, I'll just take a, a few more, and then all of a sudden, well, that, that's pretty good. Now, now your body needs it again. So you take some extra more again. All right? And all of a sudden, next thing you know, what happens? You're, you're addicted to these things, you see? Or it's the person who's going through a hard time and decides for the first time in their life, I think I'll have a, you know, no problem with this. Have a glass of wine. I don't care. It's fine. Hey, I, I slept real good last night. I could do that again tonight. So I have a glass and a quarter. And a glass and a half. And a glass and three quarters. Next thing you know, I'm having three glasses of wine every night before I go to bed. Now my eyes are glot. Now I now I do it every night. Now I've got an alcohol problem. You see, whereas initially what you did wasn't necessarily bad, but it was that first initial step of compromise where you know that your conscience is saying, "Don't do this," but you do it. And in the short term, you think the problem's going to be solved, or I'm going to keep the problem at bay. But that's how compromise always works. It's always 
Um, it's sometimes a short-term solution, but there's always long-term results with compromise. Uh, one of my favorite stories in the Bible is in First uh, Kings 16, Second Kings 16. It's the story between um, Ahaz, King Ahaz of Judah, and he remember he was about to go up against who? Do you remember who the the wicked king was? I love his name. He's my favorite wicked king's name in the whole Bible. His name is Tiglath-Pileser. Just sounds like a nasty name, doesn't it? Tiglath-Pileser. Well, Tiglath is, is, is the king of Assyria. And this guy is bad. And he's coming down and he is wiping everything slick in his path. And he's about to come to the northern tribes. The northern tribes come to Judah, to King Ahaz, and say, let's join together... And let's fight against him. Ahaz says, forget you. So you know what he does? Remember what he does? He tries to buy a short-term solution. What does he do? He sends a servant to Tiglath-Pileser, the king of Assyria, and he gives him a tribute, kind of a deposit. He goes to the temple and he gives him the silver and the gold and the sacred things out of the temple. Are those sacred things to the Jew? You bet. He guts the temple, sends a cart worth of this stuff to Tiglath with a note. And he asks if he could be if he could make a treaty with him. That he would he would not attack Judah and then he would pay him for this and he would be his servant and his son forever. Ooh. And so you know what Tiglath does? Tiglath goes ahead and he destroys all of Ahaz's enemies and leaves Ahaz alone. Did it work for a little bit? It did. But we know later that Judah eventually got ransacked and got utterly destroyed. And all Ahaz had to do, like all of the kings of old that were faithful, is he simply had to trust the God of Israel. Because God promised that of all the tribes, there's one particular tribe that God would protect because there was going to be a seed come forth from it. What tribe was that? Judah. Out of Judah, one would come forth. Right? This was God's special tribe that the Messiah would come forth from. So if you were the king of Judah, you had a special blessing. And yet Ahaz, rather than trusting God at his word, Ahaz decides to compromise and he makes a treaty with Tiglath-Pileser. And it works just for a short bit of time. Well, that's the book of Judges here. It's the book of of compromise, of failure that comes through compromise. So a great um, application for us. Then you see how he breaks down the main narrative. And we're not going to go through it all by any means. But here are basically the six um, enemies that they face. You've got the first enemy, the king of Mesopotamia. And look how long God has the Israelites serve in Mesopotamia. How many years? Eight years. Because of their sin, God has them under Mesopotamia for eight years. Then under King Moab, how many years? Eighteen years. Then to Canaan, how many years? Twenty. Then you've got a little bit of reprieve on this next one, the Midianites. Who was it? It was Gideon. 
They're under the Midianites for seven years, and then he ramps it back up. The Philistines for 18, and the Philistines again for 40. For 40 years, God keeps them under judgment. Now, this says two things to me. Number one, why would, why would a people stay under oppression and servitude for 18, 20, 40 years? What are they not doing? What do you think? What's that? Okay, and then when they're not listening, and they're not crying out yet, every time in Judges that you see when the people cried, then the Lord delivered. And yet you see 18 years go by, and then they cry out. What does that tell you about this people? Huh? Stubborn, man. I love the King James word, stiff-necked. Isn't that great? The Proverbs talks about beware of the stiff-necked woman. Love that. And man, I know, and man. Proverbs just kind of popped out in my head, though. Yeah, they're stiff-necked. What's a stiff-necked person do? They're not budging, are they? You're not moving me. And they hunker in and they, I'm not going to submit. I'm not going to surrender to God. I'm not going to do it His way. So, for 18 years, 20 years, 40 years, they're trying, what are they trying to do? They're either trying to find a way out themselves, or they're just learning to have to accept a life of servitude and oppression. You see? Till finally, enough is enough. And they cry out to the Lord, and then it even says that the Lord has compassion. He hears their cry. And he sends them a deliverer. He sends them a judge. And that's a, we're going to talk about that in a second. But that's the first point I want to make. Is let's not just make these cycles about sin. They suffer for a little while. They cry out. And God saves them. And this whole book happens in about a period of, you know, eight years. This book happens over the course of 350 years. From the end of Joshua to the beginning of Samuel, over 350 years, and yet within that period, you see these long stretches of suffering. See? Does that sound like anyone in particular? I mean, is it easy for us to wait a really long time before we finally say, okay, I give up? Uh, I, met this, I met this one man. He, he goes to the study that I teach. He's close to 90. He didn't come to know the Lord until, I mean, the late 70s. It took him that long, 70 plus years before he finally bows the knee to Christ. And now for the last 10 plus years, he's been coming to Bible study and walking with the Lord. Uh, I heard, um, gosh, three, four years ago, it was the oldest man in America died at the time. He was the oldest man in America. He lived in Oklahoma. He was 110. And he had just become a Christian just before he died. 110 years. And the guy finally submits and bends the knee in whatever metaphorical sense I'm talking about. He bends the knee and becomes a follower of Christ. 110 years. Isn't that amazing? It just blows me away when I think about, about that. How long it takes people. You know, what's the percentage, Ron, about the percentage of people that come to know Christ by the age of 18 or 20? Is it 90%? It's high. And that means after the age of 18 or 20 max, 
Only 10% of the rest of people bow their knee to God. Why is that? Why does it happen predominantly 20 and under? But after that, 10% of people who get truly converted, it happens after that age. Why is that? What's that? Pride. You know, I mean, I'm in my 20s. Now I know everything. You know, now I'm 30. Now I'm making all the money I need to make. Now I'm 40. Hey, now my life is cruising. Right? And you see that people later in life, it takes a long time to get somebody to finally say, I surrender. It takes a long time to get a Christian to say, I surrender. Doesn't it? Much less the world. Well, look at this. 10, 20, 40 years. Do you have a thought? So you, you just... Yeah. 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 I, I agree. And I also think, my second point on this is, I also think that these people thought because they are of the nation of Israel, that I don't think they truly had a true serious awareness in their own interior life of their offense before God. If anything, they felt like, we're the chosen nation. Right? I mean, does that happen? That a lot of us just don't really go there in our own hearts and minds to really ask ourselves the deep penetrating question, how are my choices, how is my life not in line with God? We just think we're okay. Because why? I'm called by God. I know, I, yeah, I know God. Of course I'm in relationship with God. He's not judging me. I'm His child. Right? I'm attending church regularly. I'm doing Bible studies regularly. Surely this isn't about that. I think a lot of these people really probably lack that interior life to truly connect the dots of, of my sin with my suffering. See? Um, and actually, being in the ministry, I'm utterly amazed a lot of times at people's inability to connect those dots. That they begin sharing with you the hard times that they're going through. And all they talk about is the hard times. But as you begin to ask these probing questions, you begin to see a life and a lifestyle that easily leads to the suffering that they've gone to. And the moment you start touching that, guess what they start feeling like? Guess what they start doing? Oh, they start getting uncomfortable. You know, I just want you to help alleviate the suffering. I don't want you to talk about this. See? Because I don't think these two are really connected. I mean, they might be, but I don't really think that they are. See, let's just, let's just alleviate this. What can you do to help alleviate this? Well, I think we need to cut out this. No, 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 no. What else can we do to alleviate this? Well, that's Israel. You know, take away our suffering, but we don't want to submit. But eventually, when they realize God is just not going to do it that way, finally, they cry out to the Lord. Now, the other thing I want us to notice in this is I want you to look at the, the deliverers here. You see guys like, look on your sheet again, Othniel and, and Ehud, uh, Deborah and Barak, uh, Gideon, Jephthah, Samson. All of these guys have something in common. And it actually, in one sense, is progressively magnified. And that is that God raises these people up as deliverers. 
But what is it? What is it about? What's, what's interesting about all of these deliverers? There's something about them that's noticeably weak, right? That God will use weak, frail individuals to fulfill His plan. I'll give you a great example. Let's look at one example. Let's look at Gideon. Okay, go to Judges chapter six here for a second. Judges six. Now, under Gideon, who were they being oppressed by at the time? The Midianites. There you go. Got your nice little sheet right there. Okay. And beginning in verse 11. The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Ophrah that belonged to Joash the Abizarite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. Now, immediately, you guys know, uh, what's wrong with that picture? He's, he's doing what, where? He's threshing wheat in a wine press. Where do you typically thresh wheat? Out. Outside. Where is he threshing it? In a wine press. Why is he threshing wheat in a wine press? He's afraid. He doesn't want to be seen. He's hiding. So he's threshing wheat in a wine press. When the angel of the Lord, verse 12, appeared to Gideon, he said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Now you're meant to laugh right there. This is where we all laugh. It's a little bit of Hebrew humor right here. It's the irony. Now, of course, it's the irony that he's looking at Gideon threshing wheat in a wine press, hiding from the Midianites, you mighty warrior. But it's not just that. It's also what Gideon is going to become. It's kind of like when Jesus calls Peter. Remember? And Peter's name meant a little stone. It's a little stone. And he says, your name is Petros. You know? Your name is going to be like a boulder. And whenever he would call Peter, Peter, which means actually boulder, you know everyone just kind of snickered. Peter, you boulder, you big stone. And yet Peter was this impetuous guy that just stumbled along and always put his foot in his mouth. And Lord, though they all deny you, I never will. You know, and Jesus has to give him, use him as an object lesson. That's Gideon here. Hey, Gideon, mighty warrior. Look what he says. But sir, Gideon replied, verse 13, if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Now, what is absolutely remarkable about this question? Think about it. It's what we were just talking about. If the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? What's surprising about Gideon's question? What's he asking? What question is he asking? Who's the us? The nation. If the Lord is with us, why is all this happening? What's all this? The oppression of the Midianites. Well, you and I know why is that happening? Why is the oppression of the Midianites happening? Because of what? Because of the sin of Israel. Is Gideon connecting those dots? No. He hasn't connected the dots yet. Because he thinks what? We're the chosen ones. 
wait a minute, I thought we were the people of God. If the Lord is with us, why is all this happening to us? We should have a king's ex. It's, Lord, wait a minute, I'm homeschooled. Lord, I, I go, we pay a lot of money for private Christian education. Why is this happening to us? Are we not, are you not with us? Lord, we go to rock, we go to the 8 a.m. service, all 12 of us. We go to the 8 a.m. service. Why is this happening to us? See, it's this sense of, it's the sin, in one sense, of self-righteousness. That self-righteousness does not see the true sin that dwells in the heart of men. Now, their sin just isn't hidden in the heart. Their sin is also overt. They've been dabbling in pagan ideas and pagan gods and pagan worship. But Gideon's statement is utterly remarkable to me. I shouldn't say that because we're all like this, aren't we? That, that we wonder why life is so tough. But if we really wanted to sit down and really do an inventory of our interior life, I don't think it would take very long to find out why that is. You know, it's the person who whose heart is utterly broken and they're hurting and, Lord, where are you? And then you ask them, well... Who you've been spending time with? Well, I'm just ministering. Yeah, great. And so your heart's broken. See, it's the, it's it's where you allow your heart to go that suddenly the heart now hurts. You see, and you go, Lord, where are you? Am I not yours? It's the subtle things in our life that we do. And he goes on here and he says. Um, where are all his wonders that our fathers told us about when they said, Did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and put us into the hand of Midian. So, what's he doing now? Yeah, he's blaming God. Now, wait a minute. I've heard of these stories about how great God is, how God could just at the snap of his fingers part a sea and crush the enemies. See? But there's a difference. Whenever God would do those things, what kind of a people did He have? A people that trusted Him. God did those things for people who trusted Him. God didn't do those things for people who were stiff-necked, who were rebellious. See? Since I, I've heard of our people being saved by God like this. The Lord turned to him and said, Go in the strength and have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? But Lord, Gideon asked, how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. What's, what in the world is Gideon's deal? What's he doing here? This is the guy, by the way, that God's going to raise up as a deliverer. He's a perfect model of all of everybody. Now what's, his, what's he doing? What's he doing? Making excuses. I'm from Manasseh. We're the tribe that went on the east of Jordan, remember? And I'm from a small little clan. Surely there's somebody else. Does that remind you of anybody else, by the way, in your Bible? Who else did that? Moses. He says, go and tell Pharaoh to let my people go. Remember what Moses says? Yeah, not me. Me? Lord, I don't, have, I don't speak well. Use somebody that speaks well, as if God's going to go, you know, you're right, Moses, what am I thinking? 
you're right. I need a good communicator to get my work done. See? You just see these excuses. Uh, Jesus tells a parable, remember, about the, about the, the king that was going to have a banquet, remember? And he says, go out and invite the guests to come to the king's banquet. And so they go out. And do you remember what the responses were? Yeah, they wouldn't come because one person said, I bought a, uh, I bought a, a piece of land and I have to go look at it. Well, who buys a piece of the land having never looked at it? Right? Uh, another one says uh, something about his, about his oxen. Just crazy excuses. It, it's kind of like, you know, asking someone to go do something. They say, no, I've got to stay home and wash my hair. You know, just the ridiculous excuses. Right? Um, and so then Jesus says in the parable, so then when the king finds out, he says, go and send the invitation out to all on the street, the sick, the crippled, the lame, the weak. Remember? And so then all of a sudden, it's a banquet. For who? For the sick, the lame, and the crippled, and the weak. Us! See, that's the picture here. That's Gideon. Throws out these excuses, though. The Lord answers. He says, I'll be with you. I will strike down, strike down all the Midianites together. He's so patient with Gideon. Gideon replies... If now I have found favor in your eyes, give me a sign that's really you talking to me. Ugh. So what's the sign, guys? Remember what the sign was? The fleece. He says, I'm going to put the fleece out. And if it's really you, make the dew fall on the ground all around, but not on the fleece. And, and God in His mercy does it. Right? After that's done the next morning, what does Gideon say? Yeah, I'm not completely convinced. Let's do this one more time. Let's just do it opposite. Make just the fleece wet and the ground all around it dry. And then I'll believe. And isn't God good? Does He do it? He does it because He meets Gideon where He's at. Well, as you finish the story, you suddenly see Gideon's conversion in verse 24. And that's where you see the change. He goes to the altar... He worships before the altar and you see his life completely changed and he begins to serve God. But the point I'm making with Gideon is that he's a great picture of weakness turned to strength. Okay? During the period of the judges, unfortunately, it was a 350-year decline of a nation never getting stronger but getting weaker and getting darker and it is the dark ages of Israel. Until finally at the end, they will cry out, We want a king. We need a king. And Samuel says, you don't need a king. Trust the Lord. No, we want a king. So finally God says, you want a king? Let's give him a king like they want. And who does he end up giving him? Saul. And that's next week.